Welcome to Open Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. Today we're bringing a conversation between Dr. Ryan Gladwin and Mateus Reyes about diversity among Latinx evangelicals. For more information about today's episode, please visit us at htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to another episode of Open Plaza. This is Matt Rees. I'm here alongside my former professor, longtime friend, Dr. Ryan Gladwin. Dr. Gladwin, how are you doing today? Doing well. Pleasure to be here with you. Great, great. A pleasure is mine here to talk about diversity among Latin American and Latinx evangelicals. Yeah. Well, uh, tell me a little bit more about yourself. And I guess why don't we just start off with uh, letting people know how we know each other and um, and uh, I guess your story first, and then we kind of intersect at Palm Beach Atlantic PBA. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I live in South Florida, actually grew up in South Florida, and now teach in South Florida at Palm Beach Atlantic University, which is in West Palm Beach. That's about 90-ish miles up from Miami. Uh, I teach theology and ministry at, at PBA, and then I'm also the director of our new global leadership uh, program in Spanish, our first program in Spanish for Lat Latinos in the U.S. and Latin American uh, students as well. Uh, and uh, I grew up speaking English, but got involved in kind of like Spanish uh, as an older person in, in college, eventually married a Latina, and that's where uh, I've spent a lot of my time today focusing on kind of Latin American theology and, and, and kind of encouraging Latino students. And I think that's that's how I got to know Matt, uh, yes. who got to know him in the in the classroom uh, and uh, got to supervise uh, a master's thesis that he wrote. And then kind of we have a mentor and friendship that's extended beyond that as, as yes. well. And you've lived in places in Latin America, too, right? Yeah, I have. So, I mean, it, it started out kind of, uh, like I said, I grew up in, in an English-speaking family in, in South Florida, but then started spending summers in places like Barcelona, Spain, and, and Mexico. Eventually received a call to kind of go to, to mission field, uh, and that took me to Colombia and met mm -hmm. uh, a young Argentine girl there uh, named Natalia Raquel, uh, who eventually became my life partner. Uh, We've mm -hmm. been married be 20 years uh, this, this summer. Nice. Uh, and right. uh, you know, we've served in various places around Latin America, then among the Latino community in places, you know, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, as well as South Florida. So, yeah. I see you forgot to mention Brazil, you know, probably the best yeah. place you've ever yeah. lived at. That's Outside true. Of Edinburgh. Yeah, that's true. I did spend some time in Londrina, Brazil. It, it, Brazil, is, I always say I love Brazilians and love Brazilian food. The, the football, maybe not quite as much, mm. but, you know. I know, I know you're quite suspect in that one, but we'll talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I guess I'll give you a little bit of my background. You know, I uh, was born and raised in Brazil. I was born in Manaus, the north of Brazil, uh, Amazonas. And um, I, our family moved to the U.S. when I was 14. Yeah, so I did high school here and then uh, I went to college at PVA. I, you know, I got married as well uh, to my wife, uh, my lifelong partner, Angeli. And um, so we're coming up on 13 years in July. So got a um, catching up. <laughs> so not there yet, but uh, yeah. So, um, and um, 
growing up in Brazil, uh, you know, lived a bit between Manaus and Rio, so I got a lot of experience there as well. And then uh, when I went to PBA, uh, I've always wanted to be in a ministry. I, I knew that that's kind of what the calling that God had in my life. Uh, I went to ministry school before PBA. I did two years of ministry school at the church I was a part of. And um, I just wanted more. I, I wanted to be uh, more well-versed theologically. I, I wanted to be more prepared. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, in the Assemblies of God. I grew up very classical Pentecostal. And uh, that was a, a really big, strong part of my upbringing and my theological background. But, uh, you know, I know PBA is not a nominational, but I, I would call it more Baptist in a sense for me specifically, because coming from a, a very Pentecostal background, it, anything that's like non-charismatic feels Baptist or maybe even Presbyterian. But I, I, so um, I thought that was great and a great opportunity for me to be able to uh, stretch my theological brain a little bit, you know what I mean? Because uh, we we're very conditioned by our uh, upbringing, our background, uh, and we we're very uh, oftentimes narrow-minded in our theology. So I thought that was a great opportunity for me to be able to be pushed and challenged. Uh, so I think that that's kind of like how our relationship grew. I remember was that um, I was taking your class on global theology, right? And I had always been passionate about like social justice. And, you know, I think I had been a little bit exposed to uh, Gutierrez in uh, liberation theology. And so it was it was at PBA that, uh, you know, I started being introduced to, to Padilla and Mission Integral. So I thought that was great because I was like, yeah, I always felt good at liberation theology, but I, I never found sort of its counterpart uh, in the, uh, from an evangelical perspective. So I fell in love with Mission Integral and that's when I started researching PhD programs. And I found, um, it was really interesting, right? Cause uh, you had gone to Edinburgh and um, I remember emailing you a ton of times and you were so kind and great, gracious to, I was like, hey, I think you should check out this guy, you know, look at this one place because I was really trying to find someone that I could work under that uh, I could sort of fine tune those, those research interests. And um, I remember it's quite an interesting story, but it was uh, David Kirkpatrick uh, who did his thesis on Padilla under Professor Brian Stanley, who is now my current PhD supervisor. He was teaching uh, for a year after he, he uh, finished his PhD in Edinburgh. And I remember I came across an article that he wrote, or actually it was a blog post for the center uh, over there, Center for the Study of World Christianity. And um, I contacted him, you know, I just sent him an email. I said, hey, you know, you, you did your stuff on Padilla. And I, I think you actually, uh, you also have a connection with my PhD supervisor with, with Professor Stanley, which is quite an interesting story, how, how it's a, such a small world, if you think about it. Uh, we're talking about, you know, 4,000 miles away. And he was my inside supervisor. He was yeah, my inside that's... supervisor for the, for the Viva, as they call it in the, the UK. Yeah, so that's so cool. It was kind of like, it just felt like everything was kind of connecting. So I reached out to uh, Kirkpatrick and uh, he connected me with Professor Stanley and the rest is history. I'm thankfully in the final year of my PhD. You know the feeling, right? Like getting to write that last chapter, uh, about to, I'm working on that uh, as we speak right now. And then I got conclusion and intro and revisions. Um, so any, any uh, thoughts on that? Like uh, any advice on, on my revisions <laughs> and stuff? <laughs> yeah, no, I remember that class, Matt. I remember, uh, you know, I think that that's my favorite class to teach, not surprisingly so. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think it's a class that I see a lot of, of kind of students of color, as we often call, I, I don't really like that name. That's what we call a group of people in the U.S. Uh, they often have a chance to come, come alive, to see their own sources. 
Uh, and I, I saw that process with you, you know, you kind of know my background. I, I grew up as a Methodist, but then got involved with Anabaptists, serving in Latin America, got influenced by Pentecostal, considered myself to be kind of like a Pentecostal. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that's kind of my style in class. And so I, I, I often find that kind of Pentecostal students and obviously students from other, you know, the global South will really enjoy that class. It's like, hey, these are sources that are, that are my sources. This is my tradition. Uh, and I saw that happening with you. You know, you got excited with uh, Latin American uh, theology. It eventually turned into a master's thesis, which then yes. eventually turned into a, a PhD uh, dissertation. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I think for me, it's been a great uh, source of, 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 of joy uh, because this is kind of the reason I got into this, uh, you know, uh, got into academia, obviously research interests. I'm, I'm committed to that, enjoy presenting and writing. Uh, but what I really enjoy is, in, is empowering students uh, to be able to go out and do the ministry God's called them to do. And in particular, Latino students, because I really feel that's the connection uh, that I have and God's called me to and the and la comunidad that, that most excites me and feel a personal connection to. So I know this is not the, the, the main topic that we're talking about, but just as a side note, I think uh, it's so important to be able to find representation within the, uh, the academia, right? Uh, like the theological sources that we read. I, I, I hope to see a day where we can uh, make these sources more mainstream. You know what I mean? Because uh, I think people should be exposed to them. Uh, I, it shouldn't only be in the one class I'm exposed to Padilla yeah. and Escobar and Gutierrez and Cohn, you know, I think, I think we're, we're getting there, but it's just, you know, I, I'm an academic at heart too. So I, I just something that, uh, I don't know if you care to comment a little bit more on that, but I, I just, as you said that it kind of connects to my story, you know what I mean? Because it, it was at that time that I was able to say, Hey, I've had all these desires. Now I can connect with someone who has a, a similar background as, as mine. And I, I found myself at home you know, theologically speaking. So I think that's so important. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think uh, I love teaching the class global theology, but it, it, it's it's representative of a paradigm that kind of says the meat and potatoes of theology is kind of European theology. And then here's kind of a class that you're required to take, which is a good class, I think. Uh, <laughs> not because I teach it, but I think it's a good subject matter. But it, it, it kind of means that you've learned all the other theology and then here learn these kind of global voices which, you know, I think that paradigm's got to shift uh, in light of where world Christianity is today. Most of Christians live in the global South uh, and they are thinking theologically uh, and, you know, their voices are important. Uh, they should be our primary sources throughout all our classes. Uh, but I think we're still kind of catching up with that uh, as often the academy is often catching up where kind of the reality of where Christianity is today. Yeah, that's so true. And I'm so glad that I got to, uh, to go to a place like Edinburgh, to Center World Christianity there, uh, because you, you are exposed to theology from outside of, you know, Western European theology. And, and as you said, I agree with you completely, because that's kind of the way I look at it, too. It's sort of uh, meat and potatoes or main course is your Western uh, theology. And then when you look at other global south theologies you're looking more as an appetizer you can have it if you want it but you know as long as you're eating meat and potatoes then, you, then you're fine but we we have to sort of bring it to the main table and uh, and allow people to uh, partake in that as well so uh, you know i'm glad to be 
a part of this field and something that I, I wish to bring to light uh, going forward. Yeah, no, and that's something else we have in common. I think you mentioned that we're, well, you're soon to be an Edinburgh grad. I'm also an Edo, Edinburgh PhD uh, grad. Um, my super, one of the reasons I went to Edinburgh was uh, at that time, uh, Marcella Altheus Reed, who was an Argentine theologian, mm -hmm. uh, was uh, a full professor there. And she was my first supervisor, and I was actually her last student. Uh, she unfortunately passed away while, while I was there. Uh, but uh, that was, you know, went to Scotland to, to study Latin American theology. Uh, so an interesting place to do it, but it was, it was a great experience for me. And I'm, I'm so glad it's working out for you uh, as well. And I'm, I'm excited to see your research. I think you're doing some really excited research uh, that's bringing to light uh, kind of the Latino community here in the U.S. Yeah, no, certainly. And I, I think it, uh, it's kind of scary to take on like sort of a, uh, to brave on new new worlds in a sense uh, not not many have written on on the subject that i'm looking at so there's a lot of ground to cover but it's exciting because you get to to sort of expose people uh to these things so uh and on a side note i i, uh, I know you went through a lot when you're doing your phd losing your supervisor and stuff so i always admire your, your resilience uh when you're doing your phd so uh, just a, a note out there for all the students that are looking at doing a PhD. Uh, it's not always going to be easy, right? It's, most of the times it won't be easy. Uh, there are so yeah. many things that I had to go through and you have to go through. And I appreciate your honesty because I, I know it was like, uh, do you remember uh, my first time in Edinburgh and I called you and I was like, man, I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling. I, I'm away from home. I'm away from my friends. It's the first time I've moved away like this. And I was just, and I remember you were telling me that you had your own difficulties that you went through. Uh, and I, I appreciated that because it just sort of made me realize that I wasn't the only one going through a, a difficult, I would say a difficult time or a challenging time adapting to the PhD world. And, you know, we talked about imposter syndrome and all these uh, fears and anxieties that you have as a PhD student. And it was just good validation for me. So I appreciate that. Why don't we just talk a little bit more about uh, your, I know you wrote a book and I was, I was glad to be able to, uh, to do a review on it, a book review on it uh, called uh, Streams of Latin American Protestantism. I think you do a great job in that book of talking about the diversity of Latin American Protestantism. And it's one of the things that we want to talk about today is, you know, a lot of times people have this idea that Latin American evangelicalism or Protestantism is sort of, uh, you know, uh, loud, you know, uh, it's very Pentecostal, it's uh, gifts and, and speaking in tongues. And, and I think uh, a lot of people fail to realize, and that's one thing that I try to do with my own research on Brazilian Protestants in the U.S., that it's quite diverse. It's not monolithic whatsoever. So you do, you do quite a great job on that. Uh, so why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, your book and how that came about and what you, you got to yeah, so I've, I, uh, it's a book that was published in 2020, as you said, Streams of Latin American Protestant Theology, uh, published by uh, Brill. Uh, it's been a, it was a labor of love. Uh, I, I see it as kind of like an introductory text in that it kind of introduces people to the world of kind of Latin American Protestant theology. Uh, and I think it kind of came out of a place of sometimes of a frustration of the lack of recognition of the diversity within Latin American Protestantism and evangelicalism. Uh, you know, often the ways that kind of evangelicalism globally or Latin American Protestantism is interpreted is through the lens of kind of how it's talked about in other places, whether, you know, the U.S. or, or kind of Britain. 
And, you know, I think a lot of times the, the interpretation of evangelicalism is here is what I would call more of a conservative evangelicalism, a certain type of evangelicalism. But within Latin America, you've had a diversity among Protestants from very, very early on. And I remember even as a, as a student and a master's student, sometimes being frustrated in the classroom when, we, when they would talk about Latin American theology and it was kind of, there's only one flavor. And I was like, right. well, what, if, you know, what about these other traditions? So, you know, I, I think the book kind of came out of that frustration and was also kind of inspired at some level to try to take Jose Miguel Bonino's book, Faces of Latin American Protestantism, yes. uh, and kind of bring, bring it up to the times. Uh, and so it, it looks at different streams of Latin American Protestant theology. And, and as I said, people may not be aware of kind of the diversity. And, and it's, I've got to divide it into a number of sections. There's, there's liberal Protestantism. Uh, and what I mean by liberal there is not how it's often understood in kind of the North American context, but this is more kind of 19th century liberalism kind of inspired right. in the enlightenment, you know, focused on things like liberty, individualism, property, security, uh, the, these ideals, which were kind of taken forward in the founding of, of a lot of democratic liberal societies, uh, early Protestants, when they kind of go into Latin America, uh, found themselves often to be allies with liberal politicians and movements for liberalism in Latin America. Uh, and not surprisingly so, there was kind of a movement within uh, Latin American Protestants to form kind of a liberal theology, which saw its high point arguably at kind of the 1916 Panama Conference. Uh, eventually, you would have out of that uh, what comes, you know, probably, you know, arguably the most well-known uh, Latin American theology, is, which is liberation theology, which is kind of like a, a son or a daughter of, of kind of liberal uh, Protestantism. But then you've got evangelicalism, which is a world in and of itself. And you can talk about conservative evangelicals. You can talk about progressive evangelicals. Uh, and the division between those two groups is growing as even as I speak now. Yes. Uh, and then you've got Pentecostals, uh, which I think a lot of times you kind of see Pentecostalism as being just like one group, but there's within Pentecostalism, there's lots of diversity. You know, you already mentioned, Matt, you kind of come out of a classic Pentecostal yes. grouping. Uh, and, you know, classic Pentecostals, you think of like, you know, Assemblies of God, Church of God, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, kind of these historic Pentecostal groups, which have been influential, uh, obviously, in, in Latin America. Uh, but then you also have kind of charismatics uh, as well that came a bit later and an influence that kind of hit well beyond just certain denominations. But, you know, there's charismatic uh, Anglicans, there's charismatic uh, Presbyterians. In Brazil, for instance, there's the charismatic Catholic uh, movement. It's the yeah. largest in the world. Yeah, I mean, that that branch of Catholicism is the branch that's growing the biggest in Latin America. Uh, and it's kind of the future of the church in many ways. Uh, and then you've got neo-Pentecostals or neo-charismatics, depending on where you are, how they call them, which has, you know, since the 1970s become really the face of Pentecostalism. Uh, and in many ways, Pentecostalism has flowed out of kind of the Pentecostal lane and has now touched all different types of Protestantism and even Catholicism, as you mentioned. Yes. So I, you know, I think the book, specifically looks at these different, it gives some of the history on those, but then also looks at kind of the different theological trends and some of the great diversity uh, in these. And, and what I think is, is, is helpful about the book is it kind of shows that 
Latin American evangelicalism, Protestantism has always been diverse. Uh, and in many ways, that diversity is kind of continuing to grow uh, today. Yes, yeah. uh, and I, I think uh, one of the things that I, we're, we're going to get to more later on, um, it's the idea of even engagement, uh, social engagement of the church and society and church and politics. It's, it's not monolithic whatsoever either, because uh, I know a lot of times, especially today, we, we tend to think of evangelicals as primarily conservative. Uh, and as you mentioned, there is a wing of progressive evangelicals, which is where I kind of found myself with uh, Padilla. And uh, that was the, the most appropriate term was progressive evangelicalism, right? Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned the, the social commitment. I mean, I think that that's been something that uh, Latin American theology in general is, is often very noted for. Uh, we obviously often think of, at least in North American context, what's most studied is, is liberation theology uh, and a very, very important movement with obviously a strong social commitment, uh, which was, you know, obviously influential on Catholicism, but also a lot of Protestants on the early end, Ruben Alves, Jose Bonino and others that were, were influ very influential. Uh, and so, you know, that was a movement that was very concerned about social impact and kind of changing society, transforming society. Uh, but then, as you mentioned, there's also progressive evangelicals, which, you know, they've, they've often kind of been ignored uh, in, in the larger academy. And, and it's only really in more recent years that there's been kind of the realization that they weren't really a responsive movement to liberation theology, but actually people like Rene Padilla, Samuel Escobar, and others were, were writing their theology the, pretty much the exact same time that you have, you know, Ruben Alves, Jose Bonino, Gustavo Gutierrez writing. So it, it's, it's an innovative movement, just like liberation theology, but within kind of evangelical clothes, you know, a very biblically, uh, you know, engaged uh, theology that wants to stay evangelical. Yes, uh, Kirkpatrick, I think, talks about that, uh, mm -hmm. how they weren't necessarily, uh, they're not responding to liberation theology, they're responding to the same stimuli, uh, the same social issues, you know, uh, that, that liberation theology was responding to because it's you know, late 60s early 70s yeah and it's i mean it's it, it's interesting that i mean over time there will be some response but i would say probably the response was hardest against conservative evangelicalism more so than than liberation theology i mean you know progressive evangelicals definitely criticized liberation theology but i think they saw it in many ways as a as an ally partner yeah. Uh, and, and for that reason, sometimes they were accused of being Marxist, just like liberation theologians were. Uh, and, uh, you know, so they they over time did kind of see themselves as critiquing both liberation theology, some of the method, I would say, of liberation theology, but in many ways shared the overall critique of injustice, uh, shared overall kind of the, I would say, kind of like the meta narrative of kind of God is me a God of justice with, with liberation theology as well. Uh, but then we critique some of the method specifically of liberation theology. Uh, and then, as I said, some of their hardest critique was actually for conservative evangelicalism. Uh, and there's been some kind of knockdown drag out fights between those groups, you know, uh, between conservative and evangelical uh, through the years. Uh, progressive evangelicalism has also influenced uh, global evangelicalism as well. So for example, we can think of, of uh, Lausanne, 1974. Uh, I'll yeah, that right the, now. yeah, the Lausanne statement specifically, like Rene, Samuel Escobar, Orlando Costas, 
they arrived there and gave some speeches that definitely ruffled feathers. Set the place uh, on fire. Yeah. And, and in many ways helped push the hand of, of John Stott and other ways. You know, I, John Stott's often been given kind of the credit for the statement on social commitment there. But really, the credit should go to people like Rene, uh, Samuel, and Orlando, because uh, they're the ones who kind of made sure that got in there. Uh, and like I said, ruffled, ruffled feathers uh, they, in both an official way. Then they had some, some unofficial meetings on the side as well to kind of help push things forward. And then that started a number of decades of back and forth between progressives and, and conservatives. Uh, yes. And so there continues to be some, some divisions. And I mean, I would say today that the division's even kind of growing more as you've got kind of like a now second and third generation of progressives and now kind of like a, almost like a neoconservatism yes. is coming out. Uh, yes. as well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, one other thing to mention with the social commitment, you know, we've early studies of Pentecostalism in Latin America uh, were, were very critical of Pentecostals and kind of said that they had no social commitment. They were apolitical. Uh, since then, uh, there's been a realization that that was not true, that Pentecostals have often just envisioned transformation in different ways, maybe not in totally social transformation, but instead more of a community focused transformation and that Pentecostals have always been involved in that. Uh, as I always like to see, I've, I like to say, you know, I've, I've been in lots of slums throughout Latin America and every slum I go to, there's always a Pentecostal pastor there. Uh, yes. And uh, which demonstrates that Pentecostals care deeply about social transformation. It's just their theology which is usually in a sense kind of taken from conservative evangelicalism doesn't really buttress that. It doesn't help them to, to really think about that. Today though, there was in Pentecostals, I'd say kind of a growing progressive Pentecostalism. It's engaging some of the sources like you mentioned with Mission Integral. Uh, and so you have kind of a growing Pentecostal voice that's, that's thinking more coherently and more kind of directly about, okay, what's it mean to be Christians and how do we engage the world around us for issues of social justice? Yes, that, that's true. And I, I think, as you said, even a divide between progressive and conservative today, we do see that uh, even as we move into the United States, you know, my research focuses on Brazilian evangelicals here in the US. And I did notice quite a, a tension, especially as we look at US politics, and what does it mean to be conservative and progressive in terms of immigration? Uh, I think those are things that I definitely notice in my field work. And um, um, I think uh, one of the things that I noticed uh, is that uh, we continue this diversity. Uh, I did three case studies. I studied a uh, reformed uh, Presbyterian church. I study a Baptist non-charismatic church and I study a non-denominational charismatic. Uh, so I, I wanted to give sort of like this multi-flavored uh, picture because that's what Brazilian or Latin American evangelicalism really is, even as it transplants itself to the diaspora here in the U.S. So, yeah, but now that we've got you kind of talking about your research, so why don't yes. I ask you a couple questions? We'll kind sure. of switch roles here a little bit. You've been asking me questions. Now, now it's time for, you know, in a sense, the, the teacher to become the student. Uh, and to listen and to, to learn. Uh, you know, I think you're doing some, some exciting research, specifically in the context of South Florida. Uh, I want tell us a little bit about what your research is revealing about kind of the diversity of evangelicalism and, and why maybe South Florida in particular 
uh, it is a place that hasn't been as study as much uh, and, and what it's revealing. Sure. Uh, the uh, Brazilian community in South Florida is uh, fairly young in terms of the Brazilian community in the US. The older community of Brazilians in the United States is uh, in Boston or the Northern area. Uh, we have uh, longer standing communities there uh, in Massachusetts in Newark, New Jersey. We have a, a big Brazilian community now, uh, which was first more of a Portuguese, but still a large presence of Portuguese uh, uh, people there as well. And uh, so uh, specifically as to my research, I've noticed uh, that there's a big discrepancy in the uh, Protestant Catholic uh, divide, or, or as far as the number of churches, of course. So in Brazil, Brazil is still 70% uh, by census numbers Catholic, and about 22% or so Protestant. When, we, when I got to the United States, when we come here, we don't have as many Catholic churches. Uh, for instance, in my research, I found a Catholic churches or parishes uh, in the three counties. So we're talking about Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County down here in South Florida, uh, which, which is are the most po the most populous counties in in right in terms Florida. of Hispanics and, and yeah. Latinos. Yes, uh, we we hold the majority, uh, sixty seven percent, I think, of the Hispanics in the in the state live in these counties, and um, so with uh, with that, I, I found a very small number, and. We, I don't have an exact number just yet of the amount of Brazilian churches because a lot of churches come and go. A lot of churches, uh, you know, they, they, they switch pastors and whatnot. But on average, there's about 50 to 100 uh, evangelical churches or, or Protestant churches. And we say evan evangelicals because, as you know, in Latin America, the word evangelical or evangelical is sort of a catch-all. So it means Protestant as opposed to the way that evangelicals understood as just a part of Protestantism in the United States. So it's, I know it's kind of hard to go back and forth, but you know, for the sake of this, we say Protestants uh, because it encompasses all Protestants, not just evangelicals in the sense uh, of the American term. And um, for, um, I, I found this to be very different in the, the landscape of Brazil. Uh, some of the people that I study, for instance, Paul Fresson, sociologist of religion has said that Pentecostalism uh, or Protestantism, but especially Pentecostalism, is a what he called the religion made to travel. Uh, one of the things I realized is that, of course, for Catholic parishes to move, there's a lot more bureaucracy, a lot more quote-unquote red tape uh, to, to happen. So these churches are not able to move as easily. Uh, there's a, a lot more that has to be done in the aspect of training, finding a priest that speaks the language. Uh, whereas with these Protestant churches, a lot of these pastors are migrants first, so they move to the country and then they, you know, get a calling or, or you know, they're not necessarily invited by a church. So it's not like old missions board that would invite someone and, and have to veto that person. And okay, so now you've gone through this one year preparation as a missionary, you're going to go to this country and you're going to start a, a church. No, these people are literally just moving with their families, uh, either starting a church on their own with the support of another church. So Protestant churches are able to migrate a lot easier. Um, another thing that I found in my research is that in Brazil, a lot of the uh, social work is done by Catholic parishes. Uh, you know, we have the, uh, a, a much larger, deeper theological reflection on sort of the social gospel or sort of a social understanding of the gospel in Catholic churches in Brazil. But here in the US, it's more of a pragmatic approach, it's more practical. 
And I found that a lot of the evangelical churches, the Protestant churches are the ones doing most of the work with the migrants, primarily because they're a larger entity as a whole. You know, there's a lot more evangelical churches to go around to, to sort of supply the needs of these migrants. But that's become sort of this evangelical, uh, um, evangelicalism point. So uh, evangelism, I'm sorry. Uh, so they're evangelizing through social commitment. So a lot of the way that these churches evangelize is someone comes in, they're either a Catholic in Brazil or, you know, they were going to a church and then they come here and then they're like, oh, I need furniture in my home. I need uh, a, a car and I need to, to help my kids get settled in school. So the church comes in and is able to take sort of this more holistic approach. Like we said, more pragmatically speaking, not necessarily uh, a, a deeper theological reflection. So I did find this role reversal when it comes to the Protestant uh, Catholic divide uh, and, and from Brazil to the US. Uh, church takes a much more meaningful role in the US for Protestant churches because in Brazil, you know, people have families, they have more different support than maybe they have governmental support. In the US, they're sort of alone in a sense. And the church is able to anchor those people. And, and uh, that's that's kind of what what I'm writing a lot of my thesis about this, this additional role that the church takes. But uh, speaking of the diversity, uh, I did notice um, a very diverse group of people. Um, as you were saying, um, there is a, a lot of diversity between the conservative and progressive. Uh, majority of Brazilians uh, are, are fall, Brazilian evangelicals fall on the conservative aspect. Uh, one of the things that I also noticed in my research was the fact that uh, when Brazilians come to the U.S., they have this picture of the U.S. as a model Protestant country. You know, historically speaking, you're able to read about, you know, the, the first founding fathers and some of them had connections with Christianity. Uh, and so a lot of Brazilians have this picture of the U.S. One of the pastors said, I came here to pastor Brazilians because I'm not coming here to implant Christianity. Christianity is already here. He called it the birthplace of Christianity. And of course, I had to, I think he means to Brazil, you know what I mean? But he was looking at America because if we look historically speaking, yes, uh, Protestantism started in Brazil primarily through American missionary efforts. The uh, Presbyterian Church, the Baptist Church, uh, the Assemblies of God were with two Swiss uh, missionaries that had stopped in Azusa and then went over to Brazil. Uh, but uh, so I think he he's correct to say that, but you kind of see this understanding and this view of the U.S. as this modern Protestant country. And uh, to, that, to that point, they've really aligned themselves with uh, the conservative uh, Christian nationalism that we see today of this idea that the, the answer against, you know, progressivism or, or progressive ideas or sort of this deterioration of quote-unquote Christian values, I would say, is to have a Christian government as if you could, and to sort of establish this, you know, Christian nationalism idea of uh, that's how we're going to accomplish these things. So uh, Brazilians uh, very much find themselves in that side of the spectrum, as we also can see in Brazil with uh, Bolsonaro and his conservative uh, ideologies as well. Uh, a lot of Brazilians uh, will say that for the sake of the family, for the sake of all these things, uh, uh, we have to vote these people in because that they're the answer uh, to save Christianity. 
So, so it, it's interesting because you're you're talking about kind of some of the the neo kind of conservative trends that you're is seeing in places like Brazil, but you're also seeing some of them here among the immigrant community. Yet at the same time, they do seem to be some turn concerned for sometimes what we call kind of more progressive political commitments like immigration and stuff like. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So maybe that kind of that theological disconnect. So that. You're saying they have quite conservative theology. Yes. They talk in ways that sounds more like conservatives. But then when you kind of get to actually examine some of these communities, some of their commitments are more what we would often equate with progressives. Right. And there's definitely inconsistencies. That was one of the main points in my uh, thesis is that uh, there's there's a ton of inconsistencies in terms of how people see themselves, uh, theologically speaking, how they handle um undocumented migration. How do you handle the idea of an undocumented migrant Christian? Uh, should you obey the government? Should you be here undocumented? Uh, how does that work? And uh, I've had different responses to that. So it's very diverse and oftentimes inconsistent because a lot of times most of the pastors are documented. Uh, so it's a, uh, they come at it from a different perspective uh, than the parishioners that are undocumented. So Yes, there's an understanding, but there's also a desire for people to become documented whenever possible. Uh, Brazilian conservative churches are very well known for like moralism and following moral conduct in the law. So there's that difficulty to come to terms with this. And then politically speaking, I know one of the pastors talked about this because they want to support maybe the Republican Party because the Republican Party might have some ideals that they're comfortable with when it comes to perhaps abortion, uh, maybe like uh, homosexual rights and things of that nature. But then they're like looking at immigration issues. And uh, he said, you know, we, we lean more Republican, but then when we look at some of these other issues, we are more democratic. So he does understand that there's this sort of conflict. And in some ways uh, there is that difficulty to come to terms with supporting perhaps the Republican Party and some of anti-immigration policies that could cause, you know, perhaps a, a, a reduction in the migration flows, which would ultimately shut down these churches in a sense because they're dealing with migrant communities. So if we stop migration flow, because these, um, these Brazilian churches are primarily dealing with, you know, first generation migrants. I did a, a chapter on 1.5 and second generation, which is 1.5 being the children that came here after, uh, well, sorry, 18 and younger, uh, but they were born in Brazil. So they, uh, it's like myself, I lived 14 years in, in Brazil and uh, 21 in the US. So I've lived more of my life in the US than in Brazil. So a lot of me's already been influenced by my life in the US. And um, so these churches are dealing primarily with first generation migrants that move here. So I've talked to pastors, you know, what do you think is gonna to happen to these churches 30, 40, 50 years from now? Are you still gonna have a need for it? Well, the, all of them would like to say that yes, because there will still be migrants coming in, people that wanna speak the language, they wanna to connect to their culture, they wanna feel at home uh, abroad. So, however, if we were to kind of close down and make it more difficult for people to come in, uh, perhaps these churches would, would even shut down in, in the future. So yes, that those are inconsistencies that are there. Uh, it's definitely not black and white. There's no, you know, consensus when it comes to how people understand 
immigration policies, how they understand politics, but they primarily tend to always side with more conservative for those reasons that we, we've been talking about. Okay. If, as you were talking, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, I remember Jose Nies Bonino, the Argentine theologian, who I mentioned a couple of times, and writing about Pentecostalism said that he felt Pentecostalism, you know, the experience of Pentecostalism was uh, much greater than kind of the evangelical theology that they inherited could deal with in the sense that the, the theological clothes that they inherited were too small right. for their Pentecostal experience. And, and it sounds like you're saying that a little bit here that you, you see these communities getting involved in the reality of helping their neighbor, helping people in their context, you know, helping in immigration issues. But then when you actually have a theological conversation with them, it almost kind of segues back to more of kind of a conservative, evangelical, Pentecostal, whatever it may be, theology. Yes, that, that's a great point. And, and I think that's when people have to take a step back and reassess, right? You have to reassess uh, some of their theological whole, uh, points and their, uh, their, uh, their basis, uh, because a lot of times what you believe theologically may not align with your context in the sense that you, you have to have a little bit of wiggle room. And that's kind of hard when people tend to have this very black and white, uh, one way or no way uh, approach to theology and, um, and not really understand the context and uh, the ability to contextualize. So I think um, in practice, they do things that are not necessarily how they would say it in theory. And that's why uh, in many ways, we don't have a fully developed theology, uh, which I think uh, also Paul Fresson mentioned is in one of his uh, writings, that uh, Brazilian migrants are in need of what he termed a theology of the undocumented. Because all these things that we're talking about here are coming out of conversations with pastors behind closed doors, right? So there is no actual in public fora, there's no discussion, there's no systematic uh, treatise of this or approach uh, of these issues. And I think they're necessary because this is real life, right? Uh, people are dealing with this, people are undocumented, people are, are needing more uh, support from the government and sometimes not getting it. They're, they're dealing with all those struggles and challenges of what it means to live undocumented. And I think in many ways, it's kind of hurtful for them to, to maybe see a, 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 a support for someone else that would be kind of perpetuating those those struggles that they've dealt with. And, and definitely uh, in, in South Florida as a whole, I, th I think um, we are different because a lot of the Brazilian community is undocumented, but uh, you know, as we know from the uh, last elections, South Florida was kind of uh, a big Republican uh, stronghold because of uh, Cubans uh, in, in South Florida that are documented can vote and have more of a fear of that, uh, you know, socialism, Marxism, left-wing politics. Go ahead. Yeah, now that, now that you've kind of gotten into this, let, let's go ahead and dive into kind of yeah. what makes South Florida real. I mean, I think this is pertinent because uh, obviously in, in the last election, uh, you know, Trump carried Florida. And, and part of that was that he was able to perform a lot better among the, the, the Latino community. Uh, that was a surprise to a lot of people outside of Florida I didn't find it so much a surprise. And part of it was because I think a lot of times the South Florida Latino communities misunderstood. It, it's quite diverse, right? Mm -hmm. 
you know, you, uh, you go down to Miami and there's a little everything. There's a little Buenos Aires, there's a little Quito, there's a little Sao Paulo. Every, every community in Latin America has a, a place in, in Miami. Uh, you know, so Miami is often correctly called, you know, the, the northernmost city in Latin America. Yes. Uh, and so you've, you know, it's, it's a very, very diverse Latino community. Uh, but at the same time, you mentioned that there's a lot of Cubans. You know, you go to places like Hialeah, uh, down in Dade County, uh, now I think it's 90% Cuban. Uh, and then more and more recent years, we've had a lot of Venezuelans coming in as yes. well. Uh, why do you, how has that influenced South Florida then to be a little bit more conservative in some ways in some other places? You started to talk about that. Talk a little bit more sure. about why these communities like the Cuban community, Venezuela, and some other communities coming in have a little more conservative take on things. Yeah, well, a lot of it, in my opinion, I think it's this lazy discussion or argument of left versus right, of conservative versus progressive, and in many ways of a democracy versus socialism, right? So I call it lazy because people don't really like to dive into the actual differences between capitalism and socialism or, you know, pro progressivism and conservative, conservative uh, conservative ideas. So I think a lot of times people are so quick to dismiss an idea by calling it Marxist. Uh, I know we just to bring back a little bit to what we're talking about. Uh, when you mentioned Padilla, uh, I, I remember reading his writings, he said that uh, you couldn't talk about the social responsibility of the gospel uh, without having someone call you a Marxist, without having someone call you a communist. And I think in, in many ways, history repeats itself because we find ourselves here in 2021 dealing with some of those many, uh, many of the same issues. Of course, maybe we still, we still call it Marxism today, but the new buzzword is you know CRT, right? Critical race theory. So, oh, you can't talk about theology and the responsibility of the gospel. You are a CRT uh, subscriber now, you know what I mean? Uh, you got the, the CRT card. So I think a lot of that is uh, what I call the, the three Ds, right? distract, def, uh, deny, or deflect. So if you can distract and talk about something else, we're done. We haven't, we're not talking about the subject anymore. You can deflect into a different issue. Oh, uh, you want to talk about this, but what about that? You know, you want to talk about the, the need for, uh, for better immigration. Oh, what about abortion? Uh, we weren't talking about abortion. We're talking about immigration. Like those are two separate issues. So, so the deflect, or deny, you deny that it's an issue. Oh, there's, what do you mean? There's no racism. What are you talking about? There's no, like I, and that's happens a lot when people use their own experiences and they try to make a, um, a study out of that or like a theory out of their own experiences. Uh, and I know I'm a Brazilian American. I know I'm a Latino, but I'm not the Latino. I'm not the only one, you know, my experiences are my experiences. Uh, they're very much painted and, and structured around who I am as a Latino, as a, as a person of color. However, I, I can't be the spokesperson, right? Because people are gonna have different experiences. So that's just a part of it uh, on this, the way people argue about this. And politicians have preyed upon this uh, and they've used this to their advantage because they uh, pry upon people's fears. Uh, people's fears from Cuba are valid. They have a fear of, of being under a communist regime. So whenever you say, hey, you know, Joe Biden is communism 2.0, they're gonna say, I want none of that. 
Uh, you know, there's, there's people that, and we're talking about just not many years ago. So their kids are, you know, there's people that are, that came through the different migration waves uh, of Cuba. You know, we had uh, uh, several open waves where people were just allowed to come here. So we, we have people that have different takes on that. And same thing with Venezuela. Uh, we have, you know, Chavez and then Maduro. So people are afraid and they, they use those fears to just, you know, distract and deny and deflect and say that everything that is something they don't agree with is all of a sudden Marxist, all of a sudden um, communist. And then you ask them a question, they won't be able to explain it to you. Like define Marxism. What is what is communism? What, what does he mean? What it, Tell me a communist country or a, a socialist country today, and they won't be able to explain anything to you. But definitely that that comes into uh, the yeah. South the Latino context in South Florida. Yeah, I mean, I think you can make a strong argument that that, that message played well uh, in, in kind of these three counties that you mentioned, you know, Palm Beach, Broward, uh, and Dade County. You know, and I think that's something interesting, you know, we think in kind of the U.S. political scene that the Democrats often kind of want to claim to be kind of the party of, of, of immigration. Yeah. Uh, but it seemed like here in South Florida, at least, they didn't have a message that really played as well or at least captured the imagination. Uh, and and I, I agree with to- all the critiques you're saying that it's, it's, it's an unfair comparison, but clearly for some of the of the community the extended latino community that that message played pretty loud and clear yes. and, and convinced quite a few people to kind of go uh one way uh now on the other hand i think you brought to light too that even within kind of the cuban you know community or venezuelan community that there's differences of opinion as well you know kind of the earlier generations are extremely anti-castro uh and, uh, you know, I, I think of the stories of like I had a, a student who told me a story about his grandfather who kept a bottle of wine to finally drink it when when Castro would die. Uh, you know, so you've got that generation yeah. of, of Cubans. But then the younger generations, I don't want to say they're like pro Castro, but they're not as negative and, and more likely to be able to engage in a conversation yes. uh, about these things, you know, second, third generation, uh, you know, Cuban uh, Americans. Uh, and so there's diversity even there. Uh, yeah, I noticed that well. with Brazilians as well. I did. Uh, the younger generation are more accepting of Latino terms uh, or even being called Hispanic because, you know, we have the, the nomenclature issue. Uh, some, some would say, what is Hispanic? What is Latino? And of course, Brazilians don't qualify as Hispanics because we speak Portuguese, but we're Latinos. But sometimes those two terms are used interchangeably, right? And as if they're both the same thing and they're not. And for Brazilians, that, that's a little bit more difficult, but the younger generation is more accepting. And to your point as well, with the fears uh, for the older generation, that's the same strategies uh, that, that are used politically in Brazil with Bolsonaro, because we had eight years of Lula and then Dilma, uh, and then we, you know, with the Workers' Party. So then now all of a sudden, they're like, oh, we need a, we need a change. We need a change of, of the guards because we're too left and we need to bring back to the you know, sort of the conservative, uh, anything else that's outside of this is Venezuela, right? And I think that's such a unfair and even uh, wrong way to argue. And, and it's, it's unfair to Venezuelans. And it's uh, in some ways demeaning, right? To, to use yeah. uh, a country as a pejorative, like, oh, you know, you're going to turn into Venezuela. It's like, okay, like, what are you trying to say here? So I, I think that's just, I don't agree with that. My wife is half Venezuelan. So I definitely take that personally. <laughs> uh, and um, 
I just you know it's unfortunate it's, it's it's a very unfortunate way to to argue and to debate issues i think it demonstrates though that uh that what's happening in South Florida extends beyond South Florida as well. It's connected to Latin America, but also extends beyond that. So I, I remember hearing, so for example, part of the, the kind of like anti-Democrat linking it to Marxism talk, you know, anti-Castro, anti-Chavez language was in part being, being done through some conservative politicians from Colombia. Uh, and so you had them kind of coming up and, you know, They've learned that playbook as well. Uh, you know, I think the Brazilian case in many ways, at least for conservatives or neoconservatives, has been kind of the textbook case because neoconservatives have done quite well in pol politics, yes. you know, in Brazil. There's a lot of senators, uh, now a president. Uh, and so you had a lot of other kind of conservative, neoconservative evangelicals in the region that have said, hey, what, what happened in Brazil? We want to see happen here. So in Colombia, there's been quite a big movement as well. Uh, you know, you can make an argument that the, the 2016 no vote against the, the, the peace process, which, which carried the no vote and, and in a sense kind of came forward in part because of a long of a strong evangelical block. Uh, and that was a more of a neoconservative block that was concerned about some terminology in that document on gender, right. uh, which really didn't have anything to do with the piece. But it was, you know, it, it, these are how these things kind of get played out. And so you kind of see neoconservatism happening here within the context of South Florida, but also in, in larger movements in, in, in Latin America. Yes. As we're kind of starting to move here towards the, the end, I, I think maybe we could start to ask some questions about kind of, you know, what, what about next? Like what, what's forward? What, what are some kind of some of the hopes and maybe some of the fears we have moving forward? You know, we've talked a lot about uh, the diversity, uh, but we've also made some critiques as well. Uh, so why don't we kind of ask each other, you know, what are some of the hopes and fears we have for evangelicalism moving forward uh, among Latinos and, and Latino Americanos? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And uh, when I was kind of pondering on that, I think my hope and my fear are basically the same thing. So my hope is that uh, uh, we will be able to talk about the social responsibility of the gospel, issues of social justice and racial equity without being dismissed as a socialist, Marxist, communist, you know, you insert, et cetera, whatever you want to call it. And that my fear is, is the opposite of that, that we won't be able to do these things. So uh, I would hope that as we continue to, uh, to move forward uh, away from some of uh, these issues that 2020 brought to the, to the fore, um, we know that issues of racism, uh, immigration, those things have been around forever, right? Uh, no one became racist because of Trump. No one became anti-immigrant because of Trump. People just got a voice and an ability to expose those issues more because someone else was doing it as well. Someone else in power was sort of taking the leading role and calling people all these negative things. So guess what? Now they have the power and the ability to do it as well. Um, so it's time for, for us as you know, Latin Americans, as Latinos in the US, uh, as hyphenated people, as myself, a Brazilian American, to to come to terms with with what we live in the U.S. and I think that the gospel has so much to to answer. 
when it comes to those issues. And I think that the compassion and, and love and 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 um, all these things that we learn in the Bible and, and seeing people, right? Uh, I think that it's one way that we can start is to just see people for who they are instead of trying to ascribe something that you think of them. And that's why I said that earlier. And I think to me, so key as a Latino to not let my experience cloud the way that I see others, to not let my own lenses, my own glasses, just be the only way that I see other people. Because then if people, I could just easily say, hey, so-and-so is, you know, they're not going to school. You know, they're lazy. Uh, they're not working hard. They're, they're lazy. You know, they deserve what, they, what they're getting. Uh, and then I can't see, you know, whatever they're missing. Right. Because we're talking about equity here. It's not that we both all get the same thing is that uh, people will get uh, what's needed for them to have an even playing field. So I'm hoping that uh, as we are able to uh, to go to to go, um, uh, I think that we're that we're able to do these things uh, as we go forward and, and to talk about them more openly and to and to not dismiss them as CRT, as Marxism, as socialism. I just, I just want to be able to have open conversations with people about things that are that are close to my heart, but I also think I think there are things that are necessary to have these tough talks about racism and inequity and equality and, and, and not have those things dismissed. That That's my hope and both my hope and my fear. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I probably have some, some similar uh, hopes and, and concerns. You know, I think... Uh, in kind of the studies of of Protestantism in Latin America over throughout its history, it, you know, it was once a force for for liberalism and change, mm-hmm. uh, and and I'm I'm really concerned that it, it's moved away from that and become kind of a a force for traditionalism and kind of keeping the status quo. Uh, you know, I think part of what makes us Protestants is you know to kind of think of like Tillich is to have that protesting nature. You know, that we're supposed to kind of protest against our tradition with each generation to kind of be renewed and to become, you know, uh, reformed again and again. Uh, and, and my fear is with kind of the onset of, of kind of neoconservatism, uh, Protestantism is becoming something else. Evangelicals are becoming more of a force to, to justify the status quo. I'm, I'm also concerned with the desire for kind of Christian nationalism. It, yes. It's not just something happening in the U.S. You, you see so many evangelicals in Latin America desiring kind of this theocratic Christian nationalism uh, without accompanying it with kind of a real good theological understanding of state and politics, church, where do those things fit in without a coherent ecclesiology. Uh, And and those are some grave concerns uh, for me. Uh, I, I think that there is hope. I think that there is you know, evangelical theology, there's Latin American theology, uh, we've got to listen to those voices more, read our fuentes, uh, and, and to start to think deeply about our experience. Uh, but I think for the more progressive side of things, I think one of the challenges is, is that's got to start to be translated into things like worship music, styles of preaching, you know, things that people in the church on Sunday are, are impacted by. I think that probably conservatives and neoconservatives are dominating more that realm. Uh, and for that reason, the growth is happening more there. And I think for progressives, you got to take the, the good theology 
and, and translate it into things in, in ways that are kind of ecclesial practices that are coherent uh, to people. So, you know, reasons to be definitely concerned, but also some hope as well. Yes. And I think uh, you, you made a great point about the, the place of the church. And I'll just say a uh, side note, we've done Christendom, right? So we, we've done that model and we should have been able to learn from how we failed because the, the way that I like to look at it is that we can't just expect something from the government without giving something back. You know what I mean? You can't, it's a two-way stream. There, there's no way that you're going just to get what you want out of the government, uh, you know, and then not have to give anything back. There's a, a compromise that happens there. And we've seen this historically speaking, there's a compromise to the witness because you have to sort of change who you are to be able to remain in that relationship. And um, I, I think you talked a little bit about this on your, uh, as far as the place of the church in this, in your thesis. I read your, your PhD thesis in, at Edinburgh. Oh, good, uh, at least somebody read it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you can read mine. <laughs> and uh, it, it talked about, you know, the church is a historical project and sort of like looking at the church as the answer. And I, I, I kind of talked a little bit about that on my master's thesis as well. I do think that the church as, as a body of believers, we have to be that light. We have to be that beacon. We have to be that hope. Because if we can't get these issues of uh, race, racism, uh, racial inequity, uh, all of these uh, issues that we see in the world, uh, if we can't get them better in the church, we can't expect to get them better outside of the church. That's just my strongest belief. Like I, I shouldn't have to struggle to talk to a Bible-believing Christian about the need to love others. I shouldn't struggle to do that. You know what I mean? So it's like, and I, I know both of us lived in, in Edinburgh and, you know, it's quote unquote, a secular country. It's, you know, post-Christendom. And a lot of them, I was so shocked and, and amazed to see how in many times they did a lot more social work than we did here. And they did it without question. You know what I mean? And I was like, wow, it would take someone who really, you know, often is just doing this for the sake of it. Doesn't really have a theological meaning behind it. They can do it better than us. Why? You know, I was really like bothered by that. And um, I know you, you've experienced life there as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, this is where you see often a disconnect between kind of the theology and, and the practice. And, yeah. and I think that that's something that uh, we have in Helicos need to work on. Uh, I, I, I come back to Jose Miguel Bonino again. I think often the theology we have, it's, it's, just, it's, it's too tight fitting. It's not big enough to, to deal with the experience we have or even our social commitment. And it often hampers that social commitment. And I think that moving forward uh, for Evangelicos, we've got to think more clearly about political theology, public yes. theology, uh, but at the same time, uh, realize that as Christians, one of our first priorities has to be the church yes. uh, as well. Uh, and, you know, that's not easy, uh, but my hope is that we can move towards that. Right. And, and as a church, we can help transform our communities because it's not just about, you know, I was looking more at the churches. We have to get things better in the church so that we can in turn be that, that, that beacon and, and the light and to help those around us as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, Dr. Gladwin, thank you so much for this great conversation. Uh, and thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure for me.
This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.